I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and the present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 36, we read Liberalism by Ludwig von Mises, published in 1927. Ludwig von Mises was born in 1881 in Lviv in what is now Ukraine. He is best known for his contribution to liberalism and economic theory and his belief in the power of the consumer. Von Mises earned his doctorate in law and economics from the University of Vienna in 1906 and was a professor there from 1913 to 1938. In 1926, he founded the Austrian Institute for Business Cycle Research. His most influential student, Friedrich Hayek, also became a well-known author in the field. Von Mises fled the Nazis in 1940, coming to America, where he taught at New York University from 1945 to 1969. His work was a strong influence on the 20th century libertarian movement in America. He died October 10th, 1973 in New York City. All right, so this book is called Liberalism, but we should say at the outset that liberalism had a different definition back in 1927 than what it's come to be understood as today. And so what does it mean to von Mises? Well, he opens the book by saying, liberalism is not a completed doctrine or a fixed dogma. On the contrary, it is the application of the teachings of science to the social life of man. Liberalism concerns itself exclusively with man's material well-being, and the advancement of outward material welfare does not concern itself with the inner spiritual and metaphysical needs. So it doesn't promise men happiness and contentment, he says, but only the most abundant possible satisfaction of all those desires that can be satisfied by the things of the outer world. And I think what he means there by, is basically by consumption. And in 1927, consumption means something different than it does today, where you had a lot of people who are actually pretty poor, even in America and in Europe, where uh, there were a lot of folks who were just scraping by. He says, uh, a society in which liberal principles are put into effect is usually called a capitalist society. So in this, in this preface, he tells us that liberalism and capitalism is, are essentially the same thing, although he says it's different, but he, he's not super specific about how it's different, although... You know, maybe Kyle, you can chime in on that. But no, I thought the same. I thought he kind of he says they're different, but they always seem to occur together. So it's, I mean, maybe capitalism is the effect of liberalism on the economy, but it's it's basically ends up being part of the same system. So I think um, you know, taking from that, that we can kind of understand what he means by liberalism is basically the free market and you know a capitalist system. And we'll see that he contrasts that to to socialism in just a second here. So he says. All that has created the wealth of our time can be traced back to capitalist institutions. I think there's a lot of truth to that, just as my own commentary. And allows us to enjoy a standard of living far above that, which just a few generations ago, he says, was possible only to the rich and especially privileged. And this is something that we've seemed to have forgotten. So he sets up the comparison, liberalism versus socialism, the two different systems of human cooperation, he says. Number one, liberalism or, ca- or capitalism. Is based on the private ownership of the means of production. And socialism is the communal ownership of the means of production. And he'll argue that the only workable system of human cooperation is private ownership of the means of production. 
the program of liberalism condensed into a single word is property. So private ownership of the means of production. And I think this is enlightening for us today because there's a such an active debate again. It's almost unbelievable, but in our lifetime as to mm-hmm. whether we should ditch capitalism and return and turn to socialism. And it just would be, you know, completely uh, nonsensical to a guy like von Mises um, who saw this personally, you know, very close at hand. What What's the difference between having private property? So, I mean, I think what it, what it tells us too is liberalism definition has changed over the last hundred years. Certainly socialism, the definition has changed too, because I don't think these spoiled generation wires are actually serious about losing their phones and having to stand in lines <laughs> in order to get bread. No, that's the weird, that's the weird thing about it too. They, they use the same word, but it, if you talk about it, so we should nationalize all the factories and everything. No, no, it's not it. Well, okay. What do you mean then? Right. And that's, it's confusing. I thought what was interesting in that introduction was von Mises says that liberalism is the first political movement that sought universal benefits to mankind, mm. not just special privileges to its adherents. Yeah. It's, it's the first sort of, well, I mean, I guess that's because it grew out of the enlightenment when men were starting to think of universal ideas that could benefit everyone and not just the sort of ad hoc arrangements that led to kingdoms and tribes in the past. He also says that socialism has the same aim. Um, they also want universal benefits to mankind, at least if you listen to their to their theories. Just the means they they want to achieve it with are the complete opposite of the way liberalism wants to achieve it. And one of the the conflicts that he was seeing in his time was, you know, the socialists will promise everything. You know, oh, we're yeah. gonna remake society, we're gonna make it great. Free everything. everything for free. Yeah. I mean, you know, we see it in the election campaign going on now. And then liberals say, well, you know, that, that won't work or there's not enough money to pay for that. Then it's like, well, you're heartless. You know, you're, you don't care about the people. You're only interested in keeping what you have. And it really made me think of uh, Thomas Sowell's constrained vision and unconstrained visions mm-hmm. that we talked about in episode 23. It's just that like here you have two groups of people who really want the same thing. They want universal equality and, and raising of society's standards economically and, and, legally but just such very different ways of doing it and as von mises tells us only one of them actually can work yeah yeah he says uh socialists say equality before the law is not enough well that's an echo that we hear today i mean it's not Mm -hmm. enough to be equal before the law and he says you must also guarantee the same income you know we must also guarantee the same outcomes you know back to the soul's uh visions so he says it's not enough to abolish privileges of birth and rank. You got to do away with private property also. But he pushes back and says it's only because inequality of wealth is possible in our social order, only because it stimulates everyone to produce as much as he can and at the lowest cost does mankind today have at its disposal the total annual wealth now available for consumption. In other words, I mean this is this is a little bit what we hear from Nietzsche too, which is you need those people who are want to stand above and want to be better than in order to get ahead and have this self-interest motive motivation. Again, what some a conversation we've had over and over again is that, yeah, you can have equality of outcomes, but only by smashing those people who are at the top, you've got to level, you've got to flatten. And we're seeing that today in a hundred different contexts in California, 
they want to eliminate math tests because instead we should just grade kids on their effort. You know, mm. at Harvard, they don't want so many Asians. So what we got to do is, <laughs> is change the criteria. You know, the, they don't want so many Asians in the Stuyvesant uh, High School in New York. So let's get rid of the test. And instead, we'll just, you know, in other words, those people who are competing and doing well, the only way to level or the only way to create the absolute equality is to level from the top down. Yeah. Just think about the result you wanted and figure out a system that gets you that instead of a, you know, anything that's real or based on nature. Yeah. It's, it's in that way you can really see the opposite, you know, is where the, the liberal in von Mises definition of the term was, he doesn't talk a lot about natural law, but that's kind of what he's saying is, you know, that's, really concentrating on what is, you know, equality under the law, he says, is an absolute that every society should have, but equality in results is basically just ignoring reality. Yeah. Yeah. He says specifically, nothing is as ill-founded as the alleged equality of all humans because men are altogether unequal, even between brothers. Again, like we, we had this discussion in uh, the end of history, quoting Nietzsche, but this this really jumped out to me because he's he's talking about the resentment that's created and sort of is the engine that fuels kind of the social the socialist desire for absolute outcome equality. He says resentment is at work when one so hates somebody for his more favorable circumstances that one is prepared to bear heavy losses if only the hated might also come to harm. Yeah. In other words, Look, I'm willing to stand in a two-hour line to get bread just so long as I know that those SOBs are not making, you know, big money. Those, you know, uh, corporate titans or whatever or, you know, hedge fund managers or or even worse is like any Republican who's doing well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But I think that's – he kind of – when he describes liberalism as a, as a limited philosophy, as one that's only concerned with – the material. I think he's kind of foreshadowing what is the problem with it or why it, why any alternative besides it would seem appealing to people. Because when you do have that socialist thing, they, they've got a theory of everything, you know, that this is going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of neurosis that he talks about in, in the introduction. It, and I, I thought that was kind of funny because you see memes like that today talking about socialism as a mental disorder. And here he is saying basically the same <laughs> yeah. thing in 1928 uh, or whatever, whatever this was. But I, I think it, it shows a flaw in liberalism that we've discussed uh, on previous episodes too, is it doesn't, it isn't fulfilling necessarily. I mean, yeah. there needs to be something else, um, you know, whether that be religion or community or any of the other, you know, nationalism, even from the, any of the various things that fill that gap that make men and women feel like they're part of something and striving towards a goal together. Um, liberalism doesn't do that. And, and von Mises doesn't seem to want us to do that. Yeah. But yeah. that, that hole leaves a, a gap that gets often filled with things like socialism and, and fascism, which was rising at his time. Yeah, and I think we're going to get a better kind of description and more in, in, insights into this question, uh, you know, next week when we read Deneen. But I, I was really interested in von Mises' conversation about religion. And, you know, he says liberalism and religion could both exist without their spheres touching. But liberalism did not intrude into the domain of religious faith or metaphysical doctrine. In fact, he says the opposite, that it, 
It encountered the church as a political power claiming the right to regulate according to its judgment, not only the relationship of man to the world to come, but also the affairs of this world. It was at this point that the battle lines had to be drawn. So, you know, to your point, he says in multiple places, like uh, liberalism is not well equipped to create happiness or contentment in human beings. And that's the sphere of religion. That's the sphere of family. And it has nothing to do with us, you know, in liberalism. And in fact, our spheres are so separate that only when religion intrudes upon liberalism is when, when they cross. But I think that there's a weakness in that argument. And again, I think Deneen is really going to discuss this next week, but because what we're facing is he's, you know, he's, he, he basically wants to say that, that liberalism is value neutral and, I think we want it to be value neutral, but in fact, it's not necessarily because, you know, when we read the Carlson book on family, you know, he points to some of the problems here. Like, you know, you and I are big fans of the of free market and we're, we're going to tout that till our dying day, but there is some downsides and that is like it, it atomizes people, mm-hmm. the consumption atomizes people, the work, you know, you're no longer working together towards a common purpose. Instead, I go off to this job. My wife goes off to the other job. In, in society, we, we become less and less tight-knit and cooperative and, and tied together as, as, as a community. And that has psychological effects for individuals and sociological effects for society. And, and so it's not actually value neutral. So it's not entirely true. I, and I want to hear what you have to say about this, but I, I didn't think he was, gave us the best argument that, you know, religion is the, what's intruding upon liberalism. Cause I mean, I think, it, uh, liberalism, I mean, it's capitalism and, and the free market also intrudes upon religion in that, you know, it tears families apart and makes people like less, you have to fight against that. And yes, you have the, the upside of, of uh, an enlightened society, enlightenment, post-enlightenment society is that we have, you know, individual choice and ability to kind of chart our own course. And I think that's a massive blessing in the world, um, mm-hmm. but it does have come at a cost. So. Yeah, I, th- I think he was... I mean, I don't think he was picturing society as secular as the one we live in now. So, yeah, uh, so maybe coming uh, when liberalism was rising in the Enlightenment period, maybe I would say a lot of its opposition came from established churches, be they Catholic or Protestant, who were had a position in society and a, and a view of how it should be ordered. And now you have these you know, radicals coming out of the French Revolution and later the 1848 revolutions that wanted to take away the special privileges of the church and the nobility and make everybody equal, which is what he talks about liberalism doing. And that's why it's a great fit for America because we already yeah. were into that. We didn't have an established church, not really in the colonial era. And we didn't have nobility here. They had them back in England, but they didn't really send them over here. So it, it fit us great, but I could see that there would be significant resistance in Europe. And he was probably, I, I think still feeling that, he doesn't really say anything specific that religion does that's bad. I think it's more about the class privileges and the limitations on individual freedom mm-hmm. that a, a heavy church hand in a state would, would present. But I, I kind of wish he'd gone a little more into that because it kind of comes out at the end. We're just in a few little spots. You know, it was a little bit in chapter one and then he, he brings it up again towards the end. Yeah, yeah. One, that's right. one cannot permit the peace to be disturbed by priests and fanatics. And then moves yeah. on. They're like, well, <laughs> you're going to, I wish you'd break that down a little because there's, there's fanatics and there's fanatics. I mean, yeah. <laughs> a, a fanatical priest in our 21st century America isn't usually calling for, you know, 
us all to submit to the Pope. He's usually just wanting people to go to church on Sunday, you know, yeah. follow a few of the rules. So it's, I, I, I wondered at that, but I wonder how much of it is uh, just the influence of his times. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And and so at the end, like you said, that he bounces around with this a little bit, but in the end, he comes back to it and says, uh, liberalism does not try to explain the cosmos or say anything about the meaning and purpose of the human existence. It seeks to give men only one thing, the peaceful, undisturbed development of material well-being for all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not trying to answer any questions. You answer those questions on your own. I mean, I think that in our reading... The late great uh, Milton Friedman, you know, he's he says this, I guess, plainer language, basically like uh, whatever you want to do with your life spiritually or emotionally or that's up to you. All we're saying is we want to give as much freedom to individuals as we possibly can. And Von Mises is kind of foreshadowing that, that we just want to let people have the peaceful, undisturbed development of their material well-being. We just want to let them go to work and get ahead if they want to and give people opportunities to just have more fulfilling life than just cleaning your clothes and churning butter. I think that's, and I think that's a great vision for what a lot of conservatives would want out of their government. Just, you know, keep the peace, you know, protect lives and liberty and property and then just leave me alone. So Mm -hmm. I, I think that's still, you could see why he was influential on the libertarian movement when it developed in the sixties and seventies, because that's, yeah. that's really right. That's what they want. And, and that's all they want. And I think even for a lot of conservatives, we, we don't want much more than that. You know, even to the extent we want a more, uh, virtue seeking state, I think it's, uh, it still makes us a little uncomfortable to even say that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's highlight that. Let's highlight that a little bit, Kyle, because um, we're. I think we're in a few weeks. We're going to read a book that tries to delineate the difference between conservatism and libertarianism. But I think you put your finger on a big piece of it, which is that you know, for for libertarians, they they want to go as far as basically the Lockean vision. You know, individuals who are autonomous, and you know, going back to our reading of Randy Barnett and his vision of the constitution the only law that we need is to keep people from harming one another or harming one another's property and that's it we don't need any government besides that we'll have you know insurance schemes that right that can that can uh, you know handle all other human interactions where conservatives are like you know there is more to life than just consumption and humans actually do need to have families and and you know as only last week tribes you know we have to have to feel like we belong, that we're part of something, and and our associations are actually far more important than our you know our logical positions on policy when it comes to you know how we make decisions in the world and stuff like that. And so yeah, and I wonder if it's when Lockean ideas were getting started. I don't. Maybe it's those relationships were so ingrained into people that they didn't think they could lose them. So maybe yeah. that, maybe that's why. Locke didn't address it, and von Mises doesn't really address that. And even even later with Hayek and 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 Rand, they don't or Friedman. I don't think they see the problem of greater individual rights. And then when we when that becomes more accepted and becomes the norm and becomes the highest good in a lot of systems, only then, only now, even are we starting to say, well, maybe we need something else also to balance that. That yeah, these that's a great point. 
I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of that when I was reading it, but it's when, what you were saying made me kind of think it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's so much a part of who we are, the, the family, the tribe, the nation, that it's hard for people to think of not having one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd kind of like to re- return a little bit to his conversation about Marxism and um, socialism because uh, he spends a good bit of um, chapter, well, chapters, a little bit of chapter one, but a lot of chapter four on this. But he says, uh, science demonstrated the absurdity of the policy the Marxists wished to recommend. So they sought to invalidate logic and science. Marxists simply declare without evidence that the coming of socialism is inevitable. And he'll say what was proved by science theoretically was corroborated in practice by the failure of all socialist experience. I think that this is so prescient, what he wrote here, because he's not only saying that social science and you know economics and all of human learning proved in basically every way possible that the Marxist vision is not possible and it it doesn't work just flatly it's a dead end so he says instead of fighting that continuing to fight that same battle of no you know a planned economy actually does work okay they just moved moved beyond that and said no it's logic and science that's just the the tool well what we'll say now what they'll the the these late you know marxists will say is uh, logic and science; those are tools of the oppressor. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the tools of white privilege uh, that uh, you know keep other people down. And I just think that it's just amazing that in 1927 he kind of identified that, and that that is the new wave of of Marxism today is to you know say, well, it's the test. The test is what is you know, racist or whatever, or or is a tool of privilege and oppression and so what we need to do is eliminate all tests and logic and science science was created by the by the oppressor to keep keep the people you know keep the oppressed down and in 1927 he identified that and that's as an active a conversation in in the uh, leftist academy as you know as anything it is yeah it's really impressive because socialism has only been going in any country for about a decade when he wrote so there were, I mean, right away there were some failures and they had to change things. So maybe that indicated to him proof, but he didn't have all the proof we have today where it's yeah, failed everywhere. Right. Yeah. So that's even more really uh, insightful to look at this and say, it can't work. And I already know why even before the experiments performed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're right. They, instead of, I mean, it's, it's become a cult of anti-reason. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. I mean, he calls it neurosis and I, I I think that's about right. (laughs) We can't, we can't win on logic and science. So we need to fight against logic and science and instead say that it's my experience. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's what it's moved to is it's the level of absurdity is just, it's just makes your head spin, but logic and science, that's the tool of the oppressor. So we need to move on and say, no, it's my experience as a, as a, uh, intersectional, whatever this and this and that identity. So anyway, he foresaw that while at the same time, to your point, like, you know, he, he was, uh, alive and observing the, you know, Bolshevik revolution, but he didn't see the fall of communism in 1989, you know, or the fall of the Soviet union, Mm -hmm. you know, the Berlin wall fall and everything, but, uh, saw it coming and predicted it. And, and, you know, everything he said about capitalism, about the free market is, has essentially come to pass. So it's pretty amazing. 
and I also think really enjoyed his discussion about collectivism on the right because he yeah. he says you know there's not only the leftist collectivism but you know also the the collectivism on the right is the enemy of liberalism and what he's talking about is you know sort of the fascist and we've talked about this with other books but he says the doctrine of class antagonisms and of class conflict is accepted by the nationalist parties as well as the marxists now we had a conversation about nationalism last week with Hazoni and of course Hazoni had his own you know definition of nationalism that that was interesting and we played with it in our hands a little bit but i think on mises is referring to kind of more traditional understanding of what nationalist is you know sort of the far right collect or now it's not far right it's it's a collectivist right and this is also before nazi germany too in 1927 but he'll say what distinguishes nationalists from the marxist parties is only that they wish to overcome class conflict by reverting to a status society constituted along the lines that they recommend well and for the for nazis obviously it was what they recommended was a Aryan race of of uh, Germans uh, at the head of an international order. I think we we you know fight against this around the world today as well because you know the the collectivist right wants to unlike you know if they don't want to level like Marxists but they said they they do want to have tiers of more equal though just the same as the the Marxists would and it's just I thought it was pretty prescient and interesting that. Uh, you know, that he raised this and had this discussion in 1927. Yeah. And I, I think you can tell he doesn't really think much of, I mean, he, he gives socialists credit for having an idea and then says that the way they go about it is completely wrong. And a lot of the ideas that follow from their idea are wrong, but you know, it's a, it's an ideology, but fascism, he, he, Says they, you know they oppose socialists, but they don't really offer a counter argument to socialism. And a lot, like you were saying, a lot of what they're saying is the same stuff. It's just yeah. who's the out group and who's the in group. You know, I mean they yeah. yeah they oppose socialists and they want to fight them in the streets, like what was going on in Germany and Austria and a bunch of places in Europe in those days, where political parties had kind of have irregular militias who would attend their events and they'd fight each other. You know, a much bigger version of that. Antifa Proud Boys fight that goes on in Portland every so often. You know, here they were doing it on a grander scale in those days. But it was, but the fascists mostly were in it because they like violence. You know, I mean, their ideas weren't really. It was just they don't like socialists. They don't like what socialists were doing. They're going to fight them because the socialists were fighting. And von Mises is looking at this and saying, "What is it even? It's not. It doesn't offer any solution. It's just uh, street mobs." Yeah. Right. Well, they still want, he says, they still want interventionism in the place of capitalism. Yeah. In other words, they, they still want government control. It's just uh, kind of the fascist vision is, the, the nationalist vision is, is the society will almost work like a corporation. I mean, this is what you see in China, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. see China acts as like a corporation where you have a head, and which is, the, you know, the president and, the, you know, the, the party. And the, the means of production are still owned by, more, it's, it's semi-private still you know heavily controlled if not owned by the government and basically directed by the government so you have you have more of a you have a free market element that you don't have in in a communist society but it's still directed by a despot or whatever you know mm-hmm. the, the president yeah I, th- I thought his um i mean to speak of violence i think he when he talks about democracy it's interesting because i don't think he believes it's necessarily good in itself 
except that the only way to get it's the only way to get governments to change their policies without violence. So when he talks, but um, he gets into kind of a discussion of the fact that just because we elect people doesn't mean they're good, and it doesn't mean they're going to be liberal either, even if they're elected by liberals. The people have to keep the pressure on them to be liberal, and that when there is a flaw in democracy, it leads a lot of the socialist and fascist parties to say, see, democracy is crooked. You can't just go on who has the most votes. You have to have the best people in office. And that mm-hmm, happens mm-hmm. to be us and because it always happens yes. to be them, right? <laughs> and that's, I, I thought that was good because he said that, that Democrats also believe we should have the best people in office, but how do you figure out who's best? Well, you know, you, you vote for it. <laughs> And I said, well, really, that's a, it's a, it, it's a simple point, but it seemed like a good one to me because it kind of just, it was an elegant kind of proof. I thought that, yeah, yeah, that's you know, well, yeah, we want the best too. And how do you decide when there's millions of us, you know, how do you decide what, what's the opinion of millions of people? Well, it's an election. So that's really the only way to do it. So I, I, it was sort of a, it was like the, the Churchill quote, I think it was, about how democracy is the worst system, except for all the other systems. Yeah, it's, yeah. Because you, you can see the common thread between you know fascism and Marxism as far as you still have you know a dictator at the head, and you still have people who are more equal than others. You still mm-hmm. It's just that, that in, I guess Marxists will say that we're all equal, but in fact they're not. And uh, the nationalists would say... No, there are people who should be at the head, yeah. <laughs> and that's us. <laughs> and and the rest are you know second tier, or whatever. So he says uh, he goes on to say when comparing these two and calling them both both collectivism on the right and on the left as uh, enemies of liberalism, he says society cannot, in the long run, exist if it is divided sh- into sharply defined groups, each intent on wresting special privileges for its own members. All anti-liberal parties want nothing but to secure special favors for their own members in complete disregard of the resulting disintegration of the whole structure of society. I think this is the reason that I have such a problem with, with identity politics. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that it's just easy to see that, as he said, society in the long run, it just can't, it can't survive. You know, if you're, if we're going to divide into groups, based on whatever maybe it's a physical characteristic feature or otherwise i i think in the long run it's just it's just bad it's bad for us and uh and it's going to lead to to uh bad places there's really a lot to learn from a from a von mises who's writing in the 20s and then probably in the, my guess is his next books in the in the 30s are probably just as interesting if not more so because these grand debates about big ideologies were so alive at that time and now they're so alive yeah. again amazingly sadly it, it, it is shocking and then maybe it's you always want to say it's lack of education when somebody doesn't see your own way but of course they say that about us too you know so sure. it's i don't know what the answer is but it, it is strange to to read a hundred year old book and re, read the same fights that are going on today it's a little disheartening because we should each have more evidence on our side and be able to sort these things out better by now I was going to say he he doesn't really give us an answer of how to, yeah, <laughs> how to right. resolve the divisiveness. He just you know he just takes the the bludgeon and says no liberalism is better, <laughs> you know collectivism on the right and left. So uh, which is probably something you and I would agree with, but still that's not how you persuade. 
so I don't know. I, I, I was hoping as I was reading along, like, Oh yeah, tell us, you know, what was the answers? And basically he didn't, you know, he's like, just stick with what, what we know works, which, you know, I can't. Yeah. It was a very practical argument because, you know, I mean, it, it, when he talked about why everyone should be equal under the law, I thought it was going to be, you know, a sort of like, we all emerged from nature, you know, we, you know, the sort of Lockean equality, but it was more like, no, look, it's the only one that works. Yeah, yeah. It makes people work hard. And if you have an underclass, they're going to rebel. So really, we shouldn't have one. And, you know, which is, those are practical concerns, to be sure. I mean, he, he's right. If you if you have class privileges, then the people who don't have the privilege are going to be resentful and are eventually going to, it's going to blow up. Uh-huh. But that's, <laughs> it doesn't feel like a, a principle so much as a, just a fact of life, you know, as though if those two things weren't true, he wouldn't mind it. You know, but but these are the inevitable results of a class society. So we have to be classless because it's the only thing that works. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, but I mean that's a that's a fair argument, but it's just it, it wasn't what I was expecting either. Yeah, he doesn't have that deep sort of ideological position, and even when he's introducing us to the idea of liberalism, he doesn't go back to first principles or anything. He doesn't even attempt any first principles. Uh, to your point, as as you say that, I really. That's right. He just he he doesn't really he doesn't start with first principles and then build upon that. Instead, he just is in midstream saying, "Hey, look, guys, look. However we however we got here, it's working. So let's stick with mm-hmm. it. This this is smart." I was expecting some Aristotle because they always have some Aristotle, yeah, right. you know. But it, but there wasn't. And yeah, yeah. That's okay. Maybe maybe you figured enough guys have written about Aristotle, but <laughs> it, yeah, it was a it was a very practical politics look at why we should have equality under law. All right. So he does gives us some seeds of the contemporary meaning of liberalism in his discussion of tolerance. And I don't know if this caught your eye. He says, liberalism must be, first of all, tell me if this is something you've heard before. Liberalism must be intolerant of every kind of intolerance. One cannot permit the peace to be disturbed. And you, you, you quoted this part disturbed by priests and fanatics, but the liberalism must be intolerant of every kind of intolerance, which I think is the reason part, you know, part of the reason where we are today with Trump, because it's kind of like a, every action has a, an equal reaction in the universe or whatever. We're just, uh, with my son at the world series and the nationals are the world champions, (laughs) but, uh, at the world series game, which we're so excited about, but, uh, Trump was there. He, he, he was at game five, which we were at. And, and, uh, the level of just vitriol in the crowd of just booing him so hard. Look, I'm, I'm not going to get into the, the question of Trump, but I will say like, I, I just, it's sad. And, you know, my son is 11 years old. He looks at me and he says, wow, these people really hate Trump, don't they? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I just, I, I, I don't agree with that level of, but I think that that's, you know, von Mises has, has kind of told us what is the source of that level of just vitriol that's that's forcing that's turning us all into rude and uh, I don't know just inappropriate behavior for adults to uh, to boo like that. I think, but but uh, I guess it comes from a a, a place of we got to be intolerant of every kind of intolerance, and we think that uh, you know Trump is intolerant, and we've got to just push back with everything because you know, he doesn't deserve civility of any sort. It's like we got to fight back with everything we have. And if he brings a knife and we got to bring a bazooka or whatever to, to push back. I don't know what your thoughts are. 
Well, as a, as a Philadelphian, I'm more tolerant of booing. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and I mean, we, I remember booing the mayor here. <laughs> so it, it's, there is, but I think I see what the connection you're making. I hadn't thought of that, but it's true. It's it, that can overwhelm tolerance itself. That anti, anti tolerant or, you know, in intolerant, you know, or anti intolerant, however you want to call it can run away with it because it, it lets you, uh, you identify an, an other as, you know, those are the intolerant people over there. So we have to be intolerant to them. But then I think, I mean, to your point that if you draw that too broadly, then you're basically calling everyone intolerant. And then you're kind of getting toward the class privilege ruled by the best men that von Mises is warning against and, mm-hmm. and saying that liberalism actually isn't. So I think balancing these two requires some good judgment. He talked about just about how we shouldn't treat government officials as though they're, you know, above the rest of us, that it's a noble work. He says there's no rational basis for the overestimation of the activities carried on in the offices of administrative authorities. It's a form of atavism, a vestige from the days when the burger had to fear the prince and his knights because at any moment he might be spoliated by them. He's, he's right. I think sometimes, and it's usually when it's like the guy we like is president. And we say, you know, you got to respect the office, and it's you know, it shouldn't. So I think sometimes a politician ought to get booed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in D.C., I think some of them go a little overboard with their hatred of the president. I don't think you should hate anybody, but a boo now and then should remind somebody that he's just a a person serving in an office. That's true. I guess in Philadelphia, you guys boo Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we get that a lot. All right. Well, I think that we've basically covered it. What's uh, what's your final thoughts on on von Mises? Um, I I like this book. I thought it was uh, it's a translation from the '60s. Um, I'm not sure if he translated it or, or somebody else did, but it's very clear. Sometimes when you read the more philosophical books, there are sentences you have to go back and look at three or four times to see what the guy's talking about. I didn't find that with von Mises. I thought it was a very clear explanation of what a liberal is and if not necessarily the first causes of liberalism, but certainly how it should be in his view and what kind of a limited vision it is and why it should work. So I I think if you're interested in that tradition that runs from Locke to Friedman, this is definitely in the middle of that. And it's worth, you know, that it's, it's a good read for that. Yeah. And you can see where, uh, you know, Hayek got uh, some of his, some of his thinking from, and I think you're right that again, he's, this isn't a, an original sort of back to first principles to figure out the world. Uh, instead it's, it reads a lot more like an essay where you're picking up where, where we are and making a strong argument for liberalism, but really for the free market and for capitalism. And I think we've, I've been a little, you know, critical of a few things that he said, but overall I, I love it because again, like, you know how big of a fan I am of Milton Friedman, and I, I just wish we had a Von Mises or or a Friedman today to really push back on on a lot of this because I think it's I, th- I think that we have more of a, a tendency to want to duck and cover rather than pushing back and say no, this is actually really great what uh, what the free market has done for us. We don't want to lose sight of that. So that's Von Mises. Next time we're going to read a book called Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen. 
published uh, in 2018. It's just a it's just a year or two old, and I found this book to be super interesting. So hopefully the podcast will be interesting next week too. Catch us then. Thanks. <laughs>